Hello world, welcome to Political Worldview Podcast, March 13th, 2017, the Women's Marches and Nazi Remnants edition. Uh, I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. I'm joined as usual by Kristala Yakinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow, and now successfully rehomed after the logistical adventures of the last couple of weeks, I it trust. It is true, it is true. I'm happy and my team-making facilities are all in the places that they should should be excellent well in british life i think that's a very way to happiness is my it? adopted home and by scott lucas professor of international politics and editor of news and commentary site what's it called again scott ea worldview mm-hmm. how are you doing scott still hiding from trump so i'm still doing okay yes you'll have your access privileges been revoked as yet my access privileges. It's more that I want, don't want him to get anywhere near me at this point. That man is scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amen. Our two topics today. First, the election of Donald Trump, uh, the aforementioned scary man, has energized a wave of liberal and progressive street activism unseen in a generation. And from day one, women have been at the heart of its organization and feminism prominent in its branding. Uh, what does this mean for the women's movement? And does it bode well for the success of the broader cause? Second, sparks flew between Turkey's strongman president Recep Tayyip Erdogan and the governments of Western Europe last week as they blocked his efforts to hold political events in their countries and he responded with rhetorical fire and brimstone. Just another day in that long declining relationship or is this a new low? The day after Donald Trump was inaugurated President of the United States, millions took to the streets to protest, in America and elsewhere, in what was branded the Women's March. The protesters gave voice to an array of political causes for which Trump's election is seen as boding ill. But with most emphasis, they signal concern that women have particular reason to fear this president and what his coming to power represents. Some of this relates to his embrace of the conventional politics of the Republican right, such as restricting access to abortion and birth control. Some relate to Trump's nature as an individual and his history, which is littered with instances of cartoonishly vile sexism, including recordings which emerged during the campaign in which he boasted about sexually molesting women without consent. Yes, that is really a thing that happened. Add to this the fact that he defeated Hillary Clinton, who was widely expected to become the first female president, and it becomes easy to see why this has become a mobilizing moment for women, both young and old. The foregrounding of feminism in the fight against Trump, however, raises interesting questions. One is whether feminism can provide the big tent needed to convene all opponents of the president when its tenets and even the word itself still seem to repel some, including women, even as it attracts others. Second, whether the movement can hold together within itself, given feminism's history, along with several other movements, it should be said, of engaging in vicious internal rows. We are lucky to have a guest with us here today to interpret some of these matters for us. Millie Morris is a doctoral researcher here at the University of Birmingham who's written about this topic on EA Worldview, no less. Hello there, Millie. Hello. Thank you very much for, for being with us here today. So you think about these things uh, even more than the average person does. Uh, what what were you saying uh, in your piece on EA about the relationship between the women's movement and the protests against Donald Trump? So I think what's important for feminism is that it needs to be reflective upon itself in order to be effective. 
So what this means for me, as someone who took part in the women's marches, you need to consider feminism to be something which is for all women rather than just for a select privileged few, which I think within the mainstreaming of feminism, which we've seen uh, recently... I think that it's raised some problematic issues. So, for example, like the rhetoric of empowerment. My piece on EA Worldview, that was... What I was basically saying was that the rhetoric of empowerment is very linked to the idea of neoliberalism and individualism. And it can be very linked to post-feminism, which came out, which kind of emerged in the 1990s as a backlash to campus feminism and like the second wave of feminism which was against like campus rape culture Mm -hmm. um and what it said was that we can distance ourselves from this idea of 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 victimization and instead empower ourselves through consumption so uh an example of of um which would be like the spice girls um sex in the city the idea that like female friendships and consuming items and products and taking part in practices which are seen as traditionally feminine and embracing things which are traditionally feminine is a way to empower yourself rather than as what second wave feminists did which I'll get on to why they were problematic in a minute was to reject practices which were seen as archetypally archetypally feminine however I think what was um, problematic with the notion that you can consume your way out of oppression and a very binary it offers a very binary conception of power so the the idea that power is only carried out through oppression or through liberation whereas i would say from a Foucauldian point of view is that power is something which we take part in in daily practices and you can you can take part in feminine practices but also reject them and i think we can see like a, a re-emergence recently within the within the women's marches and before the women's marches as well through people like Taylor Swift, the Kardashians, Meryl Streep perhaps who offer a very white liberal form of feminism through the rhetoric of empowerment. So for example Taylor Swift I think is quite a good example. The idea that you can kind of treat feminism as a brand and suggest that liberation can happen through taking pictures of your wealthy white model friends who model for Victoria's Secret on yachts and saying that that and and, and packaging feminism in that way mm-hmm. or saying that you know so Khloe Kardashian has a TV show called Revenge Body which is all about empowering yourself through weight loss so embracing the idea of being heteronormatively attractive in order to liberate yourself from oppressive structures even though you're embracing those oppressive structures so you went on the women's march in london right which you know as the name suggests i mean it wasn't attended exclusively by women but the the basic thrust of the Mm. occasion was to give women the opportunity to mobilize collectively to signal their discomfort with Mm. the election result in the united states but also what it represented the the broader sense that women are under attack in, in, Mm. in politics in a variety of ways what was what was that like? It was a very diverse crowd, I would imagine, mm. but like how diverse what 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 kind of representations of the feminist agenda were you seeing mm. at that at, at that occasion? Was it a broad church was it was it a, a an organized and specific message mm. that everybody was was getting behind? How did it seem to you? 
massively diverse. Um, it was a really amazing experience, like, like to see that many people mobilised by Trump, and not only Trump, but also like Britain's alignment with that kind of misogyny. But um, I think a few things which I noticed, which I thought were quite problematic, were the fact that the Women's Equality Party seemed to kind of co-opt part of the movement who I have a lot of problems with because they kind of, they represent to me a very white, middle-class form of feminism. For example, they say that they are against violence against women, yet they're also against sex work, even though massive amount of studies have been done, have been, have been done to show that um, decriminalising sex work will lessen violence against against sex workers and the fact that they were dressed as suffragettes as well kind of erases the fact that the suffragettes were white racist movement and and kind of to me that kind of encompasses the idea of this very like white middle class feminism which is which is really problematic there are also other signs which said like some of the signs like um free melania which i thought were also you can you can link to this idea of a very simplistic conception of power, like the idea that that women are just oppressed and women are just objectified. I think that the whole free Melania and free Ivanka, you know, trend kind of strips Ivanka and Melania of their agency mm-hmm. and suggests that you know it, it kind of reminds me of you know what when you watch shows about murderers and they talk about women that like you know women that kill, mm-hmm. and they always have to talk about the women that kill as if they've been co-opted by men. So Melania and Ivanka can't be fascists in their own right. They have to be fascists because they've been co-opted by some guy. Like they, I just think that that is quite hypocritical for feminists to do. Um, so if, uh, and and um, the other thing were, there were a lot of signs that said, you know, like no ovaries, no opinion, which obviously like completely raises trans women's experiences and, mm-hmm. and, and the trans community. So I think whilst it was amazing, I think, it's now important for feminists to be reflective on how we can it can be an inclusive movement because mm. if you're only for white middle class women who are just campaigning for who are campaigning for equal pay and that's it for white middle class women then it's kind of pointless yeah i think i think what that, that gets across pretty pretty well is that the organization of these marches and the messaging of these marches has been a pretty fraught business from the mm. beginning right as i remember the, the the sequence of events the idea of the women's march originally came about fairly spontaneously mm. as a result mm. of some women in the united states who put the idea out there it then rapidly spiraled into an organized event but that event and its organization quickly came under pressure from black women, uh, more marginalised groups, mm. people who wanted to point out exactly that, that even though it was representing on the one hand a marginalised group, i.e. women, mm. it was also within that not representing a lot, a lot of marginalised subgroups w- within that. Yeah. And the tension, it's the, and Amanda Hess wrote a very good article in the New York Times about this uh, not, not long afterwards, uh, seems to be between two things, that on the one hand it's about being inclusive by including and representing every diverse strand of women and feminism. On the other hand, it's trying to be inclusive in the sense that it's trying to attract as many people as possible under the same Mm. tent of protest against Donald Trump, which sometimes means 
uh, some would say, trying to water down mm. the uh, the more aggressively radical imagery mm. and opinions within w- within at least the front of house of the protest, because then you will you will not get as many people who could agree on the single principle that they hate Donald mm. Trump coming along. And how how do you how do you feel about that? that tightrope walk, as it were, between trying to get as many people as possible and trying to represent uh, yeah. the message that you would consider to be the best kind of feminism. Yeah, um, I mean, well, firstly, I'd say that I think you shouldn't go straight for the jugular with people that are just... Because a lot of people at the Women's Marches, like, that was perhaps their first protest. I think it's important to not just label someone as, you know to not go straight for the jugular, to, to have conversations with people rather than just saying you're being exclusive and therefore I'm going to exclude you from taking part in these marches because people, again. People who basically mean well but who mean aren't well. versed in yeah. the so, full litany of reasons why they need to think harder about, yeah. uh, about identity and diversity. Yeah, definitely. So I think, so for example, there was one woman who I read a piece Uh, by her she held a sign that said white women voted for Trump and she said that loads of white women kept approaching her and being like well I didn't vote for Trump and she would say well I'm not saying specifically you but I'm saying that's a fact hashtag not all white women yeah so I think it's important for white women to listen and not just listen so they can answer actually listen uh, to women of colour and, and, and because I think the the 53% of white women voted for Trump that is a, a, like a really good example of the way in which this rhetoric of empowerment works so people like Ivanka, people like Kellyanne Conway um, are highlighting the fact that they can empower a certain type of woman, so white wealthy, Ivanka saying that she's going to give a, a place at the table for women which women does she mean? I don't think she means trans women. I don't think she means women of colour. I don't think she means working class women. Mm-hmm. She means white, probably attractive, um, heteronormatively attractive, um, wealthy women. So I think it's important for more privileged women to listen to, to others. The, the other, the, um, if, it's gonna, if the women's marches are going to be effective. Um, in terms of watering down, I think that you can, I think that you can see this within some of the coverage of the women's marches which kind of linked linked them to like oh women empowering themselves and they did so like glamour magazine did this one news article that was like the most empowering pictures from the women's marches and that to me is an example of of um watering down feminism where you're just like oh you've empowered yourself now shut up (laughs) that's how it feels to me like and and i think if you're going to have a watered down version of feminism then what's the point in having it at all if it's not if it's not for everyone if it's just for a certain type of person then that's not feminism that's a form of like neoliberal self-improvement like meritocracy that's not that to me is not feminism if it's if if so i think it needs to be completely for everyone and and if that's radical then so be it it's radical but or just not at all so straight to the big question, where does this go now, Millie? I mean, does it, do you try, in your opinion, do you try to organize around certain issues yeah. that people will bring together? Or do you focus just simply on this wide organizational movement to build up mm. just this network as wide as possible and then let the issues come out of that? Mm. Uh, if we are going to be dealing with the issues I think you're implying, such as uh, race, or I should mm. say ethnicity and class as well mm. as gender, how do we make those links? 
I think social media is a really good tool for listening to voices of women who aren't typically heard a lot, especially within academic circles. So for listening to trans women and women of colour and working class women, I think I'm on, I'm on quite a lot of like social networking pages on Facebook or whatever, where there's a lot of organisation and a lot of discussion around these types of issues. So I think that's a way in which the movement's going forward. I do think like mass demonstrations are really useful. Like they, they had the women's strike last week, which seemed was seemingly quite successful. I'm not really sure. I, I don't I don't know whether I have the answer of where it can go <laughs> where it can go now, but I think just like keep keeping up pressure is really, really important and to and I think that social media is a really good way to do that and, and a really good way to network with other activists. Um and a really good way of listening to people. And I guess the follow up I want is is I wonder because Trump is like a magnet in such a negative way, is there a risk that, that we focus so much on Trump that we lose sight, for example, of issues in our backyard, mm. like issues here in the UK? And again, how do you maintain It's not just about Trump, folks. There are things that, that are closer to home that we have yeah. to continue to raise. Yeah, I think Trump has galvanized people to think about these issues who perhaps wouldn't have been engaged in politics beforehand. And I think now people are kind of, people are waking up to issues that are happening in the UK more. Definitely, I think, like, this government that we've got at the moment are, like, one of the most neoliberal governments we've ever had and are just carrying out, like, the most horrific policies of austerity that are affecting affecting people massively. I think that people have started to wake up to that. I don't think you can say that just because people are focusing on Trump because you know that, that there's that argument which, are used, which is used by Trump supporters a lot, which I've heard, which is, well, actually, Obama did this. And, well, actually, in this place, this is happening. I don't think you can criticise people for focusing on one, one type of social justice. I think because it, it's mm. applicable to everyone. Like, it affects everyone because it's, you know, is it... If it's in the world, then it's affecting everyone, really. It's quite How do you, so you pick yeah. up on some really interesting things and this idea of uh, social justice issues being interwoven yeah. and us being interreliant on yeah. each other is, is something that you talk about in your articles but also is interesting from what you're saying. So you, I'm hearing things like um, uh, particularly people waking up in the UK mm. and the importance of white women needing to listen but actively listening. Mm. So how, like a, like a 101 guide, what would be your 101 guide to helping white women who are just, just becoming conscious of mm. maybe intersectionality or not even mm. there? to become allies, to move from being just kind of in this big thing to becoming allies to women of colour and trans women, trans women yeah. and, and other marginalised communities? Well, um, an example of within academia, I try and make my reading list for my classes as intersectional as possible, so send my students work that's by women of colour. Because, for, for example, if you look on a lot of the core modules in Pulsis, the majority of the reading lists are done by white men and it kind of completely mm. erases all, all women of colour and I don't think there's any trans writers on yeah. the on the reading list. So people like Jack Halberstam, who's a trans writer, and um, Bell Hooks as well, just so try and 
make my classes bring in as make my classes as intersectional as possible that's my way of doing it and also I know this sounds perhaps sounds like slacktivism a little bit but like sharing sharing things on on um on Facebook and Twitter I think um my friend recently said that she thinks she's learned more from Twitter from women of color and trans women and disabled women as well on Twitter than she has throughout her entire PhD of reading like looking up stuff up on Google Scholar because there's just so mu- so much stuff and so much like first-hand experience that's put on social media I think that's actually a really good way of raising awareness so that would be my from an academic perspective I'm not, yeah yeah I know we need to wrap up uh, now but I guess the, the last uh, thing I wanted to I want to note is the challenge of conservatism in a way mm. here because one thing this elections definitely made clear and others have too is that there are plenty of very conservative women, mm. which is to say people who took a look at Donald Trump and the stuff he said, mm. and if they weren't actively attracted by it, they mm. at the very least were okay with it, and they were repelled by and easily riled up to be mm. angered by uh, what they consider feminism to be, which mm. is some kind of alienating metropolitan uh, mm. liberal thing. And with these protests, there was this sort of debate, well, you know, what about women, for example, who are anti-abortion, which is a non-trivial mm. number of people in the United States? Does this march need to have at its core uncompromising defense of quote-unquote feminist positions mm. like birth, uh, free access to birth control and abortion? Mm. Or should it be trying to get all women together so long as they're prepared to sign up for the single principle that Donald Trump is a bad man and shouldn't be president. Mm. That's like a fine, a finely graded judgment, which mm. has no right answer, really. But how does one go about dealing with the, the outreach project that presumably exists to women who have more conservative positions than the average feminist would think they should? Well, I'd say that w- woman doesn't equal feminism, and I think that idea is a very binary conception of gender. I mean, look at people like Ivanka, Kellyanne Conway, uh, Thatcher, Theresa May. They're not feminists. They're not. They're they're women in power, and that's a very it's quite a very liberal stance to take. That if you kind of just add women and stir, that that, that that's going to create like a trickle down equality. I think that it's it's kind of like a I said in my article like a, a Frankenstein-esque blending of feminism and neoliberalism where people think that this like rampant individualism just if there's a woman's face on it then that can be equated to feminism I think if you're against issues I think if you're against abortion if you're against sex work if you're homophobic or or against trans people using bathrooms or whatever which is the issue at the moment then you can't call yourself a feminist I think that I think that that needs to be quite a black and white stance that's taken so for example like at the at the women's equality party conference they had um Nikki Morgan on the panel um who was the uh secretary the women's equality secretary I don't think that she can be she cannot be considered a feminist because she's been involved in a government which has carried out like horrific policies of austerity which have disproportionately affected women just because she's a woman that doesn't make her a feminist so I think that yeah if you're not you're not on board with those with equality for everyone basically then then no I don't think you I don't think there should be a place for you within feminism
It's time for Number of the Week, where we take a numeral connected to a topical story and give you a little bit of chatter about it. Uh, this week, eeny, meeny, miny, Scott. You go first. Thank you. Uh, I've gone big this week. I'm going to go for $157 billion, with a B. And that refers to the amount of money which is expected to be the windfall for the wealthiest Americans from the repeal of Obamacare. How much? $157 billion over the next 10 years. And that is because, and I didn't quite know this, Obamacare is not just a question of the Republicans going in and trying to gut a health care system, possibly striking millions of Americans off the roll of the insured. It also involves uh, changing taxes that were linked to that provision of health care. And through its modification of two taxes that primarily hit the wealthiest, in fact, 1% of Americans, that uh, those people who make, let's say, more than $1 million a year will reap an average of just under $16 billion in benefits from the GOP health care plan if it passes without amendment. So for all those who hear that the repeal of Obamacare was necessary to help all Americans because they allegedly uh, faced increasing medical care cost, a claim which is actually dubious in and of itself, please remember that all of those Americans will not receive that average of $16, $16 billion per year as their reward for supporting the Republicans in their quest to gut the health care system we've had for the last eight years. Yeah, so so many thoughts about that about that healthcare bill, but I cannot allow them to spill over in the course of a mere number of the week round. We that is not mere. That it. number of the week, though, uh, is not yeah. mere. No, the number that is, is a the number is uh, uh, galactic in scale, but the uh, <laughs> the thoughts we are allowed to build on the top of it sadly are constrained grievously by time. Cristala, yes, what's your number? My number this week is uh, an optimistic 8.5. It represents the number of years since the Labour Party in Australia has taken governance of West Australian politics. So there was an election on Saturday in my home state of West Australia and Adam's favourite unliberal Liberal Party. The illiberal uh, Liberal Party. That's it, illiberal. Sorry, sorry, my mistake. Illiberal Liberal Party uh, lost its seat comprehensively to the opposition party. And it was a win, and I will gloat, for uh, the Greens, the minority party, who increased their numbers significantly, and the Labour Party in opposition, and which almost doubled its numbers, I think, um, in terms of seats. And it was a great, big and very ugly loss for the Liberal Liberal Party and more importantly, for a party called One Nation. Now, I'm not sure if we've spoken about One Nation on these. I think we've mentioned them before. Pauline Hanson, exactly. the, the sort of uh, uh, hard right, ghastly racist, racist troll, who did, who did, has been gaining ground, but comprehensively lost ground in West Australia. Though she may win one or two seats in the upper house. Now, why is this important? Not just because it's a good news piece for people who don't like uh, the Liberal Party in West Australia. But it's a good news piece because it may signal broader discontent in my country of origin, one of my two countries of origin, with the Liberal Party. And it may signal next year's, if there's an election next year at the federal level, 
some kind of hopeful please God yes shift. Not saying that the Liberal the Labour Party is any better on um, many of their policies, including the key one of of um, refugee policy, but it's a positive shift for West Australia, I think. So I am celebrating it. What was the central issue in this election? Uh, it was uh, it was a rising deficit. So so West Australia is the country's kind of economic powerhouse because it sells its minerals and and I am predominantly to India and China. And yet it's run at a $41 billion deficit. And so people are discontented with that rising cost by the party that claims to be the party of conservative finance, but also spending, big spending on a highway cutting through fragile environmental territory and the loss of more endangered species. So high spending, thoughtless spending, and benefiting the few at the expense of the many. Well, my number of the week is a tiny little number. It's only two, but it is the context that makes it important. I believe we are going to call it IndyRef2, or at least so my social media feed suggests. That is to say, uh, this very day of our uh, of our recording in the year of our Lord 2017, Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland and leader of the Scottish National Party, has declared that she is going to formally request that the UK government approve a second independence referendum to take place between the autumn of 2018 and the spring of the following year. Those of us who are long-term fans of of the Scottish nationalist project will recall that there was a referendum not that long ago uh, in which independence was defeated uh, by a comfortable-ish but not colossal uh, margin. The calculus had, at the time that happened, uh, been that it was going to be a long time before there was another referendum because although the yes vote was higher than people thought it was going to be, uh, you know, a second loss would end the issue for, for a generation. But the Brexit, um, the Brexit cataclysm has changed those calculations, the supposition being that because Scotland voted overwhelmingly to remain in the EU uh, and Britain is apparently going to be led into the foreseeable future by a Conservative government that is uh, full steam ahead for Brexit, the Scottish people might be willing to think again much sooner than previously uh, than previously believed. However, we might we might note that, uh, and I'm sure we'll probably talk about this at, at more length on several future occasions, that all of the reasons why uh, Scotland voted not to leave the UK uh, previously are, if anything, magnified by the current uh, by the current turn of events, which is to say, the economic risks uh, are now much plainer. The logistics would be much more difficult because you'd be talking about imposing a hard border uh, between Scotland, uh, presumably as the SNP would have it still within the EU, uh, and Britain not. Uh, And I would imagine that the campaign that's about to take place will be, if that even is possible, a more bitter and divisive campaign than the one that took place before. So what occurs to me is that this is... um, this is an all-in bet uh, on the part of the SNP because if they lose this again, that is basically it as far as independence is concerned for a very, very, very long time indeed. But 
even though it is an instance of a politician pushing all of their chips to the center of the casino table and bellowing, I am all in, that feels weirdly familiar now as, as the way that politics just seems to work. I, I can't remember at what point exactly it was that politics became an endless sequence of watching people do that and then uh, reap the whirlwind, but here we are again, and I'm slightly nostalgic for a time um, when the world wasn't, uh, when the world wasn't like politics. this. Of course, politics. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, back, back in the days when an undue level of caution was seen as the, the main vice that our, our political leaders possessed. Anyway, to be continued, I don't doubt, well, long into the future. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that we like to keep up with the progress of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan in turning the moderately democratic country he took over into an authoritarian one under his strong personal control. This, among other things, has led him into conflict at various times with the countries of Western Europe, who simultaneously want his cooperation in matters like controlling refugee flows and fighting terrorism, but also feel concerned by his strongman instincts and his ever-escalating intolerance of political opposition, whether it be in parliament, the media, or academia. This week, those two issues came together in pyrotechnic form. In the run-up to a referendum on April 16th on constitutional reforms that include the creation of a strong executive presidency that Erdogan intends to occupy himself, there had been plans for Turkish ministers to speak to drum up support from the millions of voters in the Turkish diaspora. In Germany, two large planned rallies were cancelled by the authorities, citing fears of overcrowding. In the Netherlands, meanwhile, one Turkish minister was denied entry to the country to speak at a rally, and another who made it in was detained to prevent her from speaking in Rotterdam, where mounted police later forcibly broke up an assembled Turkish crowd. In response to this, Erdogan dropped the N-bomb twice in a week, saying, A, I thought that Nazism was over in Germany, but it turns out that it's still going on, and B, that the Dutch government were Nazi remnants and fascists. Uh, that went down about as well as you can imagine in both cases. Both countries have elections coming up, the Netherlands this week and Germany in September, uh, with both concerned about an uptick in support for the far right, fueled by reactionary sentiment regarding immigration, race and Islam. So, was Erdogan looking to pick a fight? Have Germany and the Netherlands botched their response by giving him one? And just how many million years ago was it again that people were talking seriously about Turkey as a prospective EU member? Kristala, you are our connoisseur on the podcast team of Erdogan studies. Uh, what uh, what do you make of all this? In line, I'm sorry, I'm stuck at connoisseur. In line with Millie and, and consumerism, I imagined my connoisseurship of Erdogan as like a whiskey bottle. You know, <laughs> what kind of whiskey bottle would would President Erdogan be? The 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 streamlined... a, for, a forbidden one, I assume, <laughs> given his uh, his reactionary cultural views. <laughs> A highly touché, illegal touché. smuggled one with the with great taboos A good market, it. actually. A very good market. When is he not reactionary? When mm. when is he not spoiling for a fight? Yeah, because he really seems like he was, you know, going on. out of his way even for yeah. himself. By, by, by holding these rallies in the first place, by stirring up the kind of sentiment that he's been stirring up, and then by responding by throwing words like Nazi at the governments of Germany and, uh, and Holland. This is not the behavior you engage in if you're trying to, you know, uh, simply hold a few... 
hold a few Quiet voter encouragement <laughs> gatherings uh, and get and, and keep it under the radar. Look, there there are a few threads to this that deserve untangling. The first is what's happening in Turkey at the moment. Um, and the broader referendum coming up next month about extending presidential powers, which is the context, the rallies that he was giving over the last couple of weeks have been in the context of drumming up response to that. And as you said in the introduction, the um, Turkish foreign minister's speeches at these at these various events and different ministers' speeches at these events in Turkey and, and in the Netherlands have been designed to drum up support for extended powers for the president. And so the first thing to note is that this is very, very high stakes in Turkey, right? This is something that Erdogan and co have staked a lot um, on and has been correspondingly extremely divisive in Turkey. I mean, deadly divisive in Turkey. So there is no playing around on either side. Turkish society is um, um, split into two very, very deeply on this issue and as a legacy of the last 10 years of, of build-up in Turkish politics around Erdogan and his strongman nature and increasing conservativeness of, of his policies um, and the crackdowns and the refugee issues and all of this feed into that personality politics of, of the man himself, right? So... He is, by nature, not a fan of subtle public commentary. He, he, he tends towards the incendiary. And that is because, in this case, he's also firming up his electorate, right? So he's speaking to a particular group when he says that, I thought that Nazism was long dead and, and that the Dutch are remnants of Nazis. He's speaking to an electorate. And the thing that I... I think it's important to remember every time we talk about Erdogan is that he's not a fool. He is very, very savvy and he knows how to speak to his audience and this is one measure of that. So he may not have been able to have his ministers at those rallies but he can speak to electorates across Turkey and beyond and message. And that's what he's doing, in my opinion, with the, with the Nazi comments. That's the first thing. The second thing is... You pointed to it in the introduction. Each of these countries, they they have diasporas, Turkish diasporas, with the same political divisions that exist within Turkey and are fragmented. And it's it's I mean it's fireworks time in the Netherlands in terms of Wednesday's election. And you see the far right has already weighed in on the decision not to have uh, not to have the Turkish foreign minister speak saying that Turks have Turk, Turks in the Netherlands have no loyalty to the Netherlands, they are Turkish and they should be forced to leave because that's their allegiance and yada yada. So this is cross-sectional, the things that are happening, the, 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 the Nazi comments and the idea of having high-placed ministers in the Erdogan government come and speak to rallies in Turkey does have a real threat of sparking intra-Turkish diaspora tensions, but also playing into the far-right politics mm. in both Germany and in the Netherlands. Well, that's just it. I mean, like, he's not... 
Um, he's clearly not correct that the governments of Germany under Angela Merkel or, or, or the Netherlands under Mark Rutte mm. um, are Nazis. Mm. That is a gross mischaracterization of them. But if the point is that there are Nazi sentiments yeah. in greater number than there have been on the fringes of those societies' <clears throat> politics, than there has been for some time, then that sure is true. Mm. So it's interesting. It would be interesting to think how this does play out in those European in those European societies. Does this does He's, this make the centre right governments look strong by standing up to what's perceived as uh mischief-making slash dangerous fifth columnism within their own society, or does it simply make the discourse so polarized and crypto-racist that, that the Nazis thrive even more on the, on their explicit agenda? I can do both. I don't think it's either or. But I would add a third factor to this, and I think it also speaks to the real alienation that Turkish communities and Muslim communities are feeling within Germany and within the Netherlands and Europe, across Europe and the US, and this kind of global trend towards uh, separation, fear, isolation. So, I mean, what he said speaks to multiple points. Hmm. Well, I start from the simple, and y'all have kind of hit it but he wants to win the referendum yep i mean that's the the fundamental that Christelle is right erdogan's a very savvy politician that's why he's now been either prime minister or president for more than 13 years uh, he faces a very close vote in turkey despite having control of most of the press despite threatening his opponents with detention uh, there's still enough questioning of whether this presidential system should be established, that he's going to play every card. And I I think he pretty much gamed this one out. Uh, that is, if the rallies were allowed to continue, then yep. he gets to publicize these rallies in countries that are supposedly not that warm to Turkey, but Turkish people rising up. If the rallies are blocked and the ministers are blocked, then he plays the nationalist card and says, how dare Europe do this to our great country, and of course, let's just add the Nazi stuff in for good measure. And a quick reminder, I mean, this is the same man who at the start of 2016 praised Hitler for the establishing a presidential system in Germany. So he's not exactly been consistent on the Nazi issue. Consistency isn't really... Exactly, a... and that's the point. I, and, and so I think it will be interesting to see how the referendum goes on April 16th, and no doubt we'll be returning to Erdogan, but I'm really interested in hearing you all talk about it about where or what happens now initially in the Netherlands and then in, um, in Germany. I have a sense that there will be a vote for stability in both countries. Uh, I think there will be sort of a pushback on all this gamesmanship that, that Erdogan is, is playing at and probably a pushback on builders, but I may be overall optimistic as someone who called Brexit wrong and called Trump wrong. But I think the idea of what Erdogan has posed could simply lead to people saying, look, we just don't want this kind of stuff here. Mm -hmm. And that more centrist move is what you're going to have. If we don't get that, and if you do have a very polarized vote uh, this week, and then if, it, if Germany moves that way, although I don't think it will, then I do not go where we go from here. But mm -hmm. I will say one thing. I'll say that you sort of alluded to it, Adam, and let's just make it clear. That era when we were talking about Turkey coming into the EU – 
of Ankara joining those countries. That's gone now. And that is so gone in that what Erdogan has clearly decided is he's not looking to ally with Europe. He's looking to use it as a punching bag. Mm. For however, however, he's maneuvering in other areas, whether it be in the Middle East or with the Russians. Mm. I mean, it does make it uh, clear yet again, if uh, if we need a reminder, that some people's happiest political position and the one from which they derive greatest profit and glee is that of wronged outrage. Mm. Um, that you know, on one level the antagonism that exists between Erdogan and the governments of Western Europe is about the fact that uh, Turkey deserves a place in Europe and should be embraced by European countries uh, as such, and that essentially it is the racism and xenophobia and uh, dark heart of Europe that has shunned Turkey that would embrace this process and wanted nothing more than to than to be a part of Europe that, that is responsible for the for the turn that things have taken you know going back as far as Sarkozy basically pulling down the the guillotine on Turkey's prospects of entering the EU and then kind of spiraling ever since but really really when you think about what involving what joining the EU would involve when you think about the kind of domestic reforms and institutional monitors and checks that would have been entailed by it, when you think about the constant grinding external nagging about your internal, about your internal uh, politics that would come with it, everything that I have seen about Erdogan tells me that he is way happier being outside of Europe, entitled to be furious on behalf of his wronged people about how it's Europe's fault that they've been excluded, ranting and railing about it at every opportunity and then getting to uh, bring down the iron fist domestically without anyone else in a position to tell him otherwise. I think Erdogan is opportunistic at heart and it's power that he seeks at heart, yes, but I think you underestimate moments of opportunity, key moments of opportunity, and I think if we cast our mind back to the Turkey of 2002-3-4, that was a different Turkey, I think, and there were real efforts to change laws, to change customs, to do that grinding work that you speak of. That happened. And there were moments of opening, there were moments of openness to this kind of European integrationist idea that I don't think that we should discount by looking retrospectively now down the line at mm. this totally authoritarian figure. I think that there were small moments, but I think if perhaps... I, I wouldn't entirely discount the possibility that if history had been a little bit different, it may have been a Turkey, maybe not fully integrated, um, but but a different, a different kind of Turkey. Well, I think that wider issue is what both interesting concerns me now, and that is, is there's, where's the alternative now in Turkey? Yeah. I mean, the... The main opposition in party, yeah, in prison, in in open politics, the main opposition party, the CHP, yeah. is offering, I think, no alternative vision to Erdogan, and simply parroted what he said this week about how the Netherlands wasn't really a democracy because of the decision it had taken. We know that the MHP is going to be quite nationalist in its approach anyway, mm -hmm. and as you alluded to just then, the leaders of the HDP, the pro-Kurdish and arguably pro-rights party, if you want to give that. A, are being detained. So are we really looking down at a, a shutdown of civic space within Turkey, even if this referendum faces a no vote next month? Oh, especially. 
I don't. I mean, I I think it's it's very very gloomy both ways. I don't think it's a stop. I think it's a, a pause. Which then kicks it back. If that happens, I think the imperative even more. And I, I hate it being reduced to the term European project, which I heard in so many hours this week. But the imperative in terms of countries who are facing issues like integration, in mm. terms of multicultural dynamics, I think become even greater, don't they? Given what yep. we're going through right now. Yeah, mm-hmm. it definitely becomes more stark, yeah. I think. And, and I, I mean, to, to move sideways just a little bit for a moment, I wonder what the implications are for future divisive referendums and having representatives of other governments come in to speak at critical times and, and blocking them from entry. I wonder mm. if, there's, if there's anything that's been set up by the no of Germany and, and the Netherlands that might have ramifications in the future. Well, in as much as I'm across the facts in the, in, in the Netherlands case, it sounds like, in a way, the Turkish government made it easy for them at the very end by uh, by escalating to the point where they could be where they where they could be refused on point of principle that the original suggestion was that this minister was going to come and speak to a rally that the government uh, of, of Holland said that it or the Netherlands I apologize to the non uh, non Hollander uh, citizens of the Netherlands uh, said you know, we have concerns about you know various issues of public order, etc. Associated with that, we would be happy to talk about you coming to speak to a smaller, more controlled gathering. Uh, and the Turkish government threatened the uh, the Dutch one with sanctions if mm. they didn't let this guy in. To which the response was then, well, that's just flatly outrageous. We will not be threatened. We refuse to we refuse to bow in the face of this kind of coercion. He's not coming. Mm. Which I think you know, turns the issue away from the basic principle of whether or not Turkish ministers have a right or no or, or not to come and speak to their citizens in Holland and turns it into uh, an argument about whether or not Turkey is uh, entitled to threaten sanctions against, uh, against the Dutch uh, simply for trying to negotiate, as they would see it, the terms on which a major public event could be held on their, on their own territory, which, which, which again feeds my suspicion that, that Erdogan was just as happy, if not happier, with the outcome that he got as he would have been with the event going ahead. Mm. I, th- I think it's a one-off. I mean, I, I know what you're saying, but this was so blatantly a, a political power play by this individual, by Erdogan that I'm not sure we're seeing the start of precedent here. Although it raises a question, and let me put this to you, that let's assume that Syria... Um, mm-hmm. That's gets, exactly what I was thinking. Let's assume that it winds up with a, a plan in which there is a call for elections and that uh, Bashar al-Assad or mm-hmm. one of his close ministers says, well, I need to speak to the mm-hmm. Syrian refugees, mm-hmm. almost three million of whom are in mm-hmm. Turkey. Um, please set up my stand in Ankara right now. I mean, what, what does Erdogan say at that point? Yeah, I mean, we should. I guess we, you know, lest we seem naive to the listenership, uh, we we should uh, 
raise the elephant in the room here, which is, well, like why perhaps would, is this more problematic than if, say, there was a referendum in Ireland and Scotland. the Irish foreign minister wanted to come and have a, uh, have a similar event? It's because in all of these countries, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in France, where these rallies did take place but were very controversial, mm. you know, the mood of politics right now <clears throat> is such that if you assemble uh, many thousand uh, non-white, uh, Muslim, presumably if they're going to an Erdogan rally, moderately conservative uh, people all in one place for the purposes of political mobilization, you know, that freaks out a very large part of the uh, of the electorate to which the parties of the right in Europe are, are, are trying to, to appeal right now. So on one level, this is entirely about the principle of foreign governments holding events to appeal to their citizens in foreign countries. On another level, it's about the aesthetics uh, of a very particular demographic being gathered in too large a number in countries in which xenophobic sentiment is at, uh, at fever pitch. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it is that type of recipe that either local politicians in these countries or that someone like Erdogan, um, they, they feed upon that to their benefit, which means that until you can de-escalate all these issues we've got that are whipped up, us versus them, Islam versus Christian, conservative versus liberal, there will be other versions of this, albeit not necessarily in the same form as uh, an intervention in an election rally in another country. Yeah, I mean, cause it's one of those can the center hold kind of situations. Because you know, as someone who like f attempts with varying degrees of success to advocate for centrist positions on stuff, I'm always acutely aware that the kind of people who want to send in the riot police to crack heads at a street rally and the kind of people who want to be furious and inciting uh, retaliatory violence that that's happened are both optimally happy with precisely that situation. And it's people in the middle who want to, who want to say, you know, uh, can't we attempt to find some less provocative way of each carving out a uh, partial but acceptable version of what we want here while, while keeping the temperature low, that becomes really hard to do uh, when, you know, when you are flanked on both sides by people who have a strong interest in maximum heat. Mm. Well, by the time we gather, confrontation. by the time we gather again in our future podcast, I'll put my money on the fact that there is no center to be held in Turkey that's gone, mm. but that the center, the center holds in the Netherlands, in part as, a, as a, a bulwark against this type of thing. And if the center doesn't hold in the Netherlands, then I indeed will be a very, very grumpy and uh, cynical individual when mm -hmm. we uh, next broadcast. Has, um, as, a quest, as an open question to listeners and my fellow panel members, mm -hmm. have any other authoritarian leaders come out and have made any statements of authoritarian solidarity to... Erdogan in support of his outrage? Not no, no authoritarian solidarity? Not explicitly, but it does happen to uh, come just as he visited uh, Vladimir Putin mm. in, uh, in Moscow for more discussions about their mutual interest uh, in the Middle East. And more and more, I would suggest that uh, Putin's quite happy with this version of Erdogan and uh, Right now, Erdogan's quite happy to have Moscow that uh, is talking to him. And being such a strong and principled believer in the right of free assembly, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure Vladimir Putin was happy to sympathize with him about the legitimacy of his grievance in this case. I think we have set the world to rights. 
thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poll Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a rating or a comment because that helps other people discover the pod. Uh, you can also come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Poll Worldview, where you can get links to the uh, episodes of the show and to articles and to uh, other things that, that some of us are doing. Please recommend us on social media. That's a way that people often discover a good thing when someone they they know and like and respect and whose judgment is uh, strong and uh, who is also uh, um, uh, a delightful human being and good-looking in every way says to them that uh, that they like to show and that their friends should listen to it. So if that's you, then please uh, please share us on social media, mention us to a friend, get us a, get us a listen from someone who who may not have thought about doing it before. Our participants today have been Cristalia Kinthu. Where can they find you on social media if they want to find you? They can find me on Twitter at at Yakinthu, which is Y A K I N T H O U. Mm-hmm. And where can they find you, Scott? Always on EA Worldview, a news and analysis site of international affairs at uh, eaworldview.com. And on Twitter at ScottLucas underscore EA. And I'm Adam Quinn. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, which is where I transact most of my opinion-mongering uh, business. I'm Adam Quinn 161. I'm the guy who's standing next to a towering Lyndon Johnson in the photograph. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Adam James Quinn, but I use that less often. And uh, our producer has been Connor McKenna. You've been listening to us from the Pulses Department at the University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back soon. We very much hope you will be too. Bye. Bye. Bye.